You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm James Hitchcock, a professor of history at St. Louis University. This is the second in a series of talks on the Second Vatican Council. Last time we looked at the background of the council, why and how it was summoned, what was expected of it. Today we'll begin to talk about its actual work. John XXIII, when he summoned the Second Vatican Council, had made it clear that he did not expect that it would deal with a lot of doctrinal issues. Most councils previously in the history of the world had ended up defining a particular teaching of the church. Very often they had been summoned specifically for that purpose. So the Council of Trent in the 16th century had defined a number of doctrines of the Catholic Church which had been attacked or questioned by Protestants. The First Vatican Council of 1870 had defined the doctrine of papal infallibility. I think John XXIII's position in 1960 was the doctrines of the church are not in question. They are settled, they are understood, they are believed. What we need to do now is to talk about living them, applying them. He referred to the Second Vatican Council as a pastoral council. The word pastoral meaning helping people to live their faith, giving them assistance in their spiritual needs, helping them along the road to salvation. This is what we need. At the same time, it wasn't possible to entirely avoid questions of doctrine because people could not live the teachings of the church unless they first knew what those teachings were. So the Second Vatican Council was bound to deal with those kinds of things, even if that was not viewed as its primary purpose. When the council first met in 1962, there was initially a crisis that was caused by the agenda or schema, as they were called, which were presented to the Council Fathers to follow in their discussions. These had been put together by various preparatory commissions, as they were called, all of which were under the chairmanship of a member of the Papal Curia. And when the bishops of the world got to the Council and saw the schema, many of them were dissatisfied and thought that it did not accurately reflect what they thought of, anyway as being the needs and interests of the church. And they got up on the floor of the council to criticize this schema and to demand, in effect, that they be allowed to rewrite the schema. And John Twenty-Third made his most important intervention at the council when he granted permission for that and said, well, okay, if the preparatory schema are not satisfactory, then you are free to devise your own. They then proceeded to do that in a very short period of time, and that had immense effect on the subsequent direction of the Council. This was a rare intervention by John XXIII in the Council. And one reason why popes in modern times had not called councils more frequently is because there had been a certain problematical relationship between popes and councils in terms of, if you will, rival authority. At the end of the 15th century, there had been a movement in the church called conciliarism, which held that the council itself is superior to the pope. The 
Pope is the executive officer who carries out the will of the council, the policy of the council, but it is the council that has the ultimate authority. Popes never accepted that. They saw that quite correctly as an infringement of their own authority, and that had been one of the things which had made them slow to call councils. But in the Second Vatican Council, John XXIII, and then his successor, Paul VI, did not participate in the council. They remained, as it were, above it, followed very, very closely the deliberations of the council, did not intervene, did not interfere, except in the very rare cases, and he had to make a judgment in the question here of the schema. But at the same time, it was also clearly understood from the beginning that the council had ultimately no authority in its own right that no matter what the council decreed, even if it was passed unanimously, it would have no binding force in the church unless approved by the pope. That was clearly understood from the beginning, so the dangers here of the possibility of conciliarism had been eliminated. We might say a brief word about Paul VI, who will succeed John XXIII in the summer of 1963. John XXIII lives only long enough to see the first session of the council, which he conceived, he dreamed of, he brought into being. Paul VI, it has sometimes been said, was a man who was almost born to be pope. He had been born into a very devout Catholic family that was very active in church matters. And from the time he was a young priest, he had compiled a brilliant academic record. And from the time he was a young priest, he had been given increasingly responsible positions in the church, primarily in the Vatican diplomatic service, within the papal curia itself. And he had risen step by step by step through the various ladders of the church. His given name was Giovanni Battista Montini, John the Baptist Montini. And perhaps rarely in the history of the church has a man come to the papal throne more familiar, more experienced, more well-versed in the many varied activities of the church, various missions of the church, than he did. More privy to confidential knowledge about the workings of the church and problems of the church. He was a man of rather wide knowledge and wide sympathy who believed that the church had to, in certain respects, adjust itself to changed social conditions if it wanted its mission to be effective. Under Pius XII, he had risen to a position that was called pro-secretary of state, which was a title used when there were two bishops, both serving as secretary of state at the same time. In that capacity, he did not become a cardinal. Near the end of the pontificate of Pius XII, Archbishop Montini was sent to Milan, became the Archbishop of Milan, was not made a cardinal. And this virtually guaranteed that he would not be elected pope in 1958, since the cardinals could elect a non-cardinal, but never do. Some people say that the transitional pontificate of John XXIII had been designed to say Archbishop Montini will be the next pope after only a few years of interval. And indeed, Archbishop Montini was the first man made a cardinal by John XXIII after John XXIII becomes pope. 
There was much speculation and doubt in 1958 as to who would be elected pope, but there was very little in the summer of 1963. Everyone expected that Cardinal Montini would be elected pope. They were not disappointed or surprised. He's elected very quickly. He takes the name of Paul VI. Now, he is in a certain sense the pope of the council, not only because he presides over the council during the last two sessions, so during the majority of the council, but in addition, he had participated in the first session of the council. He had been one of the fathers of the council, as they were called. He had an intimate knowledge of what was going on. He was known to be well-versed in the currents of modern Catholic thought. He was known to have a very keen sense of what the problems facing the church were. He was thought to have a very strong sense of what the possibilities of such a council were. If it were to realize John XXIII's great expectations of a new Pentecost, Paul VI was perhaps better qualified than anyone else to help bring this about. Like John XXIII, of course, he also followed the policy of remaining aloof from the meetings and allowing the council, for the most part, to function independently. Well, as I've said, it wasn't possible to avoid doctrinal questions altogether, even if that was not the council's primary purpose because you couldn't teach people how to live the faith unless you told them what the faith was. For centuries prior to this time, the doctrines of the Catholic Church had been cast primarily in the form of what was called scholastic theology, which was the theology primarily of Thomas Aquinas, a great theologian who had lived in the 13th century and who had made a synthesis between the doctrine of the Catholic Church on the one hand and the philosophy of the Greek philosopher Aristotle on the other. Aquinas' assumption was that Aristotle was the greatest philosopher, the greatest thinker in the history of the human race. Aristotle had pushed human reason as far as it could possibly go. He represented, therefore, natural reason, human reason. If we synthesize that with the teachings of the Catholic Church, we thus have the best possible, the highest possible expression of truth, the benefits of human reason on the one hand and divine revelation on the other. And so Catholic theology had been done in those terms ever since the 13th century. And it had been given a very powerful boost in the 19th century by Pope Leo XIII who had declared that Thomas Aquinas was the preeminent theologian of the Catholic Church and had urged all theologians to follow him. There had been developing, however, in the 20th century, a certain amount of dissatisfaction with this particular approach to Catholic theology. Some of it that went by the name of modernism early in the 20th century had been condemned by Pope Pius X as a heresy in 1907. And the essence of modernism, so-called, was the belief that there really are no such things as eternal truths. There are no truths, whether they can be known by reason or by revelation, that transcend the historical period in which they are conceived. So every statement of truth, so-called, is valid only for a particular time. 
And those modernists would say, for example, well, what Thomas Aquinas said was relevant to the 13th century, but not relevant to the 20th century. And we cannot take his doctrines and make them our own. These modernists were people who, in effect, were denying the very possibility of religious truth, dogmatic truth, as the Catholic Church understands it. And they were condemned as heretics by Pope Pius X. There were others dissatisfied with the Thomistic or scholastic approach to theology because they just simply thought there were other possible ways of doing it. For example, Thomas Aquinas, as we said, lived in the 13th century. That means that there had been Catholic theologians for 1,200 years before Thomas Aquinas ever appeared on the scene. There was this very rich, creative period of Catholic theology in the early centuries, what's called the Fathers of the Church. The most notable of these in the West is the great St. Augustine. These people knew nothing or very little of Aristotle. They had not synthesized Catholic doctrine with the philosophy of Aristotle. They had approached it in other ways. And consequently, you had theologians in the 20th century who were quite orthodox. They were not heretics. They were not modernists, who were searching for alternative ways of expressing the Catholic faith besides that of Thomism. There was a renewed emphasis on the Bible. Let us get back to the scriptural roots of the faith. Let us try to understand the biblical mind, the New Testament mind, as best we can. Let us root every Catholic teaching as closely in its scriptural foundation as we can possibly do. This approach was sometimes called ressourcement, a French word, going back to the sources, getting back to our origins, getting back to our beginnings. And when the Second Vatican Council came to consider a variety of subjects, it approached each of these pretty much in those terms, pretty much in terms of, let us get back to our original sources. Now, in some ways, the most important of all the council documents is called Lumen Gentium, which means the light of the nations. And this is the document that has to do with the church itself and the nature of the church. And of course, you can see how this is in many ways the most fundamental of all, because how can you talk about any aspect of Catholic life until you are first clear in your mind as to what exactly the church itself is? Everything else has to grow out of that. The very title, Lumen Gentium, Light of the Nations, applied to the church, shows, of course, that a certain kind of modern liberal Catholic attitude towards Vatican II is very mistaken. We sometimes hear criticisms of what is called triumphalism. And what is defined as triumphalism is any claim that the Catholic Church has a special knowledge of truth, that it has a special authority, that it is sent to teach the world. We're sometimes warned by liberals, this is triumphalistic. The church is supposed to be humble, we're supposed to be humble, we're supposed to be learning from the world, and so forth. And yet at the very beginning of its decree on the church, the council refers to the church as the light of the nations. 
the light that has been set up by God to guide the nations, to illumine the nations, the nations which are in darkness. Gentium here, of course, is the very same word as the Jewish term that we're familiar with, the Gentiles. And it means everybody else. In the Jewish sense, everybody who's not a Jew. And in this sense, everyone who does not belong to the new Israel, which is the church. So, if you will, Lumen Gentium actually does embody what we might call a triumphalistic view of the church. And this was, I think, shared by John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth and by most of the participants at the council. But when they start discussing the church, they do not take the Thomistic or scholastic approach of immediately going to a formal and abstract definition. Instead, they begin to search the scripture. What does the scripture say about the church? And they'll point out the church is referred to in some places as a sheepfold, a fence surrounding a meadow where the sheep are kept safely, sometimes referred to as a cultivated field where seeds have been planted and are now being nurtured and these seeds are growing. And it's an attempt to understand the church, not again according to some preconceived existing abstract definition, but it's an attempt to understand the church as it appears in the Bible itself. And one of the contrasts between this and the Thomistic approach, which will be reflected in a lot of other ways too, is the difference between the abstract and the concrete, between saying something like the church is a divine institution established by God for the purpose of bringing salvation to the world or so forth, and then going to the Bible and taking this very concrete, vivid imagery, the sheepfold, the cultivated field, and so forth, and saying that's what the church is. It's important to realize that these two approaches are not antithetical to one another. They're not contradictory. You're not being asked to choose one or the other. They complement one another. And I think one of the great achievements of Vatican II was to try to bring that about, to try to say, yes, we do need clear, philosophical, rigorous, logical, abstract definitions, formulations, because we have to be very clear in our own minds what we think. But on the other hand, those kinds of abstractions don't ordinarily move people. And what we find in the scripture is what moves people. This is what touches the heart. This is what can motivate people to live. And so this is the preferred approach of the Second Vatican Council. You might say that those theologians and others who were engaged in the enterprise of what I call ressourcement, looking for the sources, did in fact triumph at the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council did not neglect or certainly did not reject the Thomistic scholastic approach, but it moved rather more heavily in the direction of ressourcement. We might mention that among the major theologians at the Council who had an impact in this direction is a man who would later become quite well known, and that is Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger a relatively young German theologian at that time, considered to be avant-garde, considered to be in the forefront of the new theology. Very much, however, a man of ressourcement. Let's get back to the fathers of the church. Let's get back to the Bible. Viewed in the context of that time as a liberal, a term that meant something rather quite differently then than it would later come to mean. 
Later, when he becomes head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he's often denounced as a reactionary, as someone who betrayed the Second Vatican Council. But Cardinal Ratzinger could say quite legitimately, I was there at the beginning, and I understand what the Council was really all about. And it is some of the people who came later who betrayed it by making it into something it was never intended to be. And there's another person who can say that quite legitimately and has, and that is the young Polish bishop, Karol Wojtyla, who was not able to attend the whole of the council because of political restrictions in Poland, but played a rather active role and was recognized as an important figure, and who, of course, in 1978 will become pope as John Paul II. Among the images which the decree Lumen Gentium has of the church, a famous one, which becomes quoted over and over again, is the Pilgrim Church. And this appeals very much to the minds of a lot of people in the 1960s for what we might call both good and bad reasons. And that is sort of the story of the Council in a nutshell people understanding it correctly or not understanding it correctly and taking it off in all kinds of different directions. But the image of the Pilgrim Church is interesting. What is intended by the image of the Pilgrim Church is to convey to people the idea that while we do have the truth, the Church possesses the fullness of the truth, that doesn't mean that we should simply be content to sit smugly and self-satisfied and say, well, we've got the truth, what more do we need? We, too, must travel the road to salvation. We, too, must get there by laborious effort. The truth is not just given to us where we then sit on it. It is given to us for us to live, to bring into the world. We have to struggle painfully sometimes and wearily sometimes before we reach our heavenly destination. The image of the Pilgrim Church also conveys the age-old idea that we have here no lasting home, we have here no lasting city. We are pilgrims on the way to heaven, on the way to the kingdom of God. We are passing through here. And while that doesn't mean that we ignore the world that we're passing through, we also cannot allow ourselves to be defined or dominated by that world. The image of the Pilgrim Church was appropriated by some people at the time of the Council, or a little after, to mean really something quite different. And that is, you might say, the confused church. The argument being that, well, the image of the Pilgrim Church means we're all sort of in this together. We're all struggling to find our destination. None of us really knows a whole lot. Maybe if we kind of pool our experiences, we may come up with something. But the essence of being a pilgrim is to wander around and perhaps to go down the wrong roads from time to time. And eventually people will come to define this as the pilgrim church means the process of movement itself is what is important, not the goal. So they will say, in effect, as long as you are a sincere seeker after truth, it really doesn't matter whether you found it or whether there is such a thing as truth, because it is the activity of seeking which is valuable. That is not what the image of a pilgrim 
means, and it's certainly not what the Second Vatican Council had in mind. The image of the pilgrim, if you go back historically and take a look at the institution of pilgrimage, is someone, first of all, who has a very clearly defined destination. The pilgrim is on the road to Jerusalem to visit the holy places associated with the life of Jesus. The pilgrim is on the way to Rome to visit the tombs of Peter and Paul. The pilgrim is on the way to the shrine in Spain where the Apostle James was buried. In modern times, the pilgrim is on the road to Fatima or Lourdes. There is always a defined definition. There is never any uncertainty. Furthermore, the pilgrim does not say, oh, well, it doesn't matter whether I get to my destination. What matters is that I make the trip. The pilgrim would be bitterly disappointed if he found out that he wasn't ever going to make it to Jerusalem. And in most cases, pilgrimage routes are very well defined. It's not aimless wandering. It's not pooling of limited experience. It's not trying out new routes to see how they work. Pilgrimage routes were always very, very carefully and strictly defined. So the image of the Pilgrim Church, which is present in Lumen Gentium, is in fact almost the polar opposite of what some people would later take it to mean. Another term used in Lumen Gentium, which gets a great deal of attention after the Council, still does, is the Church as the people of God. Now, we drew the contrast a few minutes ago between the scholastic approach to theology, which is highly systematic and abstract, and the more concrete and perhaps vivid approach that is embodied in the Scripture and some of the Fathers of the Church. Approaches which, as I said, are not intended to be contradictory, but complementary. There is a similar sort of contrast between the view of the church as a community, that is, as something that is made up of people. What is the church? Look, there it is. See all those people? That's the church. And the view of the church as a hierarchy or as an organization. Businesses and other institutions have what they call flow charts and they'll put up a chart on the wall and you'll see the chairman of the board and the president of the company and various vice presidents and all the way down the line. And you can look at the flow chart and see where your particular department happens to fit in. Whose authority are you under? Who is your boss's boss? How does this finally make its way back up to the very top of the company? You can do that for the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is a hierarchical institution. The Pope at the head, he has his cardinals, he has his curia, but primarily it is then the bishops of the various dioceses of the world who have the authority to govern the church in a particular area. And there are the parish priests beneath them, the religious orders, and so forth and so on. And then the laity. If you look at the church primarily in terms of a hierarchy, primarily in terms of a flowchart, you do run the danger, in a sense, of overlooking the laity of seeing the laity as a kind of passive body who are the large base of the pyramid, if you will, but everything that is kind of important in the church is going on at the relatively small top among the members of the hierarchy. 
Sometimes before the Second Vatican Council, there was a certain tendency on the part of people to think of it that way. The laity were supposed to be passive. They were supposed to be obedient. They were told how to live their lives in order to save their souls, and that was basically what they needed to do. And all decisions were made by the hierarchy. The hierarchy acts, the laity receives their action, or acted upon, you might say. Now, long before the council, there were people who had a very different view of things. The future Pope Paul VI was one. He had been very much involved in what was called Catholic action, which rested upon the belief that the laity must become actively involved in the apostolic life of the church. They're not just passive participants. There are many other ways in which this idea had been circulating before the council. So the idea of the church as people of God was a necessary balance to a purely hierarchical approach. So that instead of having a flowchart to represent the church, you might have a vivid picture of a bunch of people representing all sorts of social statuses, all sorts of races, genders, countries, and so on. Some priests, some religious, some lay people, some bishops. And to understand that the totality of this is the church. And the church then is the people of God. And the Second Vatican Council, I think, made a kind of necessary corrective to the one-sidedness of the hierarchical approach. It was also an attempt to be less legalistic. The hierarchical approach tends to be one of definition. What is the power of the pope? What is the authority of the local bishop? How far does it extend? A whole proliferation of rules and definitions, the kind of thing that John XXIII seemed to want to get away from. The idea of the church as the people of God emphasizes community. It emphasizes ties which are not necessarily all defined by law or rule in the same way that a healthy family, people get along with one another and relate to one another just because they've learned how to do it. And there may be some rules and laws in the family, but a good family can never be governed exclusively or primarily by rules and laws. A good family is a true community, which rests upon love, mutual giving, mutual understanding. And this is what the church as the people of God is thought to be as well. Now, there was a tendency, however, to interpret the phrase, the people of God, as simply meaning democracy. I will emphasize at every point in these lectures about Vatican II how it is a both-and situation, usually, not a either-or, meaning you don't choose between two rival theories or rival opinions, but you join them together, you synthesize them, you see how they complement one another. The emphasis on the people of God in the Council was not intended in any way to downgrade the existence of a hierarchical church. There is a section in the Council documents which talks about the authority of bishops and the authority which they have in their diocese, and it makes it clear that their priests and their people are expected to obey when the bishop legitimately commands. There had not been, in previous councils, an adequate discussion of the question of the authority of bishops. And this was thought to have been a historic lack, and so Lumen Gentium addresses it. 
But at the same time, there is found in Lumen Gentium as strong a statement of papal authority as you will find anywhere. Some people simplistically say Vatican I, papal infallibility. Vatican II, collegiality, meaning we all share in the authority of the church and the pope doesn't rule us. But in fact, it says in Lumen Gentium that the pope has this ultimate authority. To him alone did Christ give the authority granted to Peter. And it says in the most unmistakable terms, the pope may exercise his teaching authority without consulting or the permission of anyone else in the church. It also says bishops, on the other hand, may not legitimately exercise their teaching authority unless they are in union with the Holy See. So there is not the shred of possibility of saying that Lumen Gentium somehow downgraded the authority of the hierarchy, much less that they downgraded the authority of the Pope. I think that in a way to try to understand this in human terms, we have to keep coming back again to the model of the family, in which the ideal father does not continually scold and punish and doesn't try to rely on an elaborate set of rules, doesn't hesitate, however, to use discipline if necessary, doesn't hesitate to invoke rules if necessary, but at the same time builds up a spirit of love, harmony, community, where people will voluntarily and willingly live the life they should live within the community, but the father still having this authority, or the mother, when it's appropriate. That, I believe, is the kind of view of the church which is embodied in Lumen Gentium. They mentioned a minute ago the word collegiality. Now, it derives, of course, from our word college. And whereas we use the word college to mean an educational institution, historically a college is a gathering of any sort. So a monastery might be called a college. It's the same word as collection. A college is just a collection or a gathering together. It's a word that Catholics had not really been familiar with before Vatican II, but it comes into use after Vatican II in accordance again with Lumen Gentium. The most common way in which it's used is to refer to the relationship between the bishops and the pope. Because while the council says that the pope can exercise his teaching authority without consulting anyone and without getting the consent of anybody, it's fairly clear, I think, that the council does not envision this as an ideal situation. It probably thinks of that as being maybe an emergency situation that might arise occasionally. But ordinarily, the church is to be marked by collegiality. The great example of collegiality was the Second Vatican Council itself. All the bishops of the world gathered together, freely discussing among themselves, not being told what to do by the pope, the pope not breathing down their necks, being allowed to construct gradually, to shape gradually through the course of their deliberations, consensual documents, consensual understandings about various things, expressed rather crudely in the modern practice of voting. So people would count up how many bishops had voted against a particular document, 
every one of the documents of Vatican II, overwhelmingly approved by a majority of 90% or more, indicating that they had been very successful in forging a high degree of consensus, collegiality at work, not battering anybody over the head, not having 51% versus 49%, and the 49% goes home feeling very ill-used, but actually successfully forging a consensus, a common understanding, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then these documents are submitted to the Pope himself and he approves them, indicating therefore once more that he and the bishops are of one mind. This is true collegiality. They're not at odds with each other. They're not in conflict with one another. It's not the interests of the bishops versus the interest of the Pope. It is the emergence of a collegial consensus. This is taken then to be a model that should exist on other levels. The relationship between priests and bishop, the relationship within a religious order in which the members of the religious order ought to have some voice in the affairs of the community and not simply be always told what to do by superiors. At the parish level, most parishes now have parish councils in which parishioners are asked to participate with the pastor, in which decisions are to be made collegially, in which it's not a question of just simply saying this is the way it's going to be done and banging the table. This is not a violation, once again, of the hierarchical principle. It's complementary. It's an attempt to take the hierarchical principle and make it work in a living and loving way, to make it into something alive and fertile, and not simply a matter of blind and sterile obedience. But. As we've said with regard to the Council's statement about the Pope and about other things we could go on, we'd had time to do it, any idea that the Second Vatican Council conceived of the Church or reconceived of the Church as a democracy is pitifully erroneous, really. I can understand how some people, somewhat badly informed, badly instructed, might have stumbled into that understanding but I think many others who have tried to argue that the Second Vatican Council made the Church a democracy frankly know better and have said it simply hoping that they can get away with it. Because there's another way of speaking of the Church that was in use before Vatican II and which plays an important role in Lumen Gentium, and that is the Church as the mystical body of Christ. What we've said so far, the church as a hierarchy or the church as the people of God could be applied in a sense to a purely human, purely secular organization. Obviously there are all sorts of secular organizations. I cited large corporations which are hierarchical in nature. You can have a flowchart. Similarly, there are many human communities which are communities in which people get together and they're bound by common interests and common loves and common concerns and they're not terribly worried about the rules and who's telling who what to do but they're gathered together, they're carried along by their common spirit. I think most social organizations are that way. Nobody would belong to a social organization if it were just a matter of rules and hierarchy. It's only because of the communal spirit that it's worthwhile. 
But when we talk about the church as the mystical body of Christ, we're transcending this purely human. And we are getting into something entirely different. What is the mystical body of Christ? Well, in the end, we have to say we don't know because it is indeed a mystery. It transcends human understanding. But it comes from St. Paul, who says that the church is the body of Christ. He doesn't say the church is like the body of Christ, but he says the church is the body of Christ. And he says in one place, when we were baptized in Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. And having been baptized into his death, we then rise again with him. So he's not talking about us imitating Jesus or following after Jesus, all of which could be true. He's not even talking about Jesus taking his own sufferings and, as it were, giving them to us. That's also true. But he's saying that somehow or other we are participating in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That as members of the church, we are members of Christ's body. We can only dimly hope to understand what that means. But it is obviously crucial. It is obviously fundamental to our understanding of the church. And this is really the view of the church, I think, which reconciles the seeming contradiction between the church as hierarchy and the church as the people of God. Because what governs in the end is neither just rules and officers, nor, on the other hand, group spirit, but it is God who rules. It is the divine presence who rules. Hierarchy is necessary because to hierarchy was given the teaching office. It is to hierarchy that we especially look to define for us the meaning of divine revelation and to tell us perhaps when we are acting in the spirit of being members of Christ's body and when we aren't. The concept of the people of God is crucial because we must live as though we are members of Christ's body. We don't simply sit there as though we're good students taking down notes when the hierarchy speaks and they're going to have to pass an exam, but we are supposed to manifest this in our daily lives. We are part of the body of Christ and we must live that way, and hence the church as the people of God. Everything, therefore, in the end has to be referred back to the supernatural character of the church. The reason why so many debates in post-conciliar Catholicism have been so sterile, so wearying, so marked by uncharity in many instances, is the fact that the supernatural dimension has been ignored. It has been treated as though this is a dispute taking place in a corporation over who's going to be the next president, or as though it's a dispute within a social fraternity as to where the next dance ought to be held. And the unwillingness or inability to say, the church is the body of Christ. I think that the most fundamental error that has emerged from the council with respect to the church is the tendency 
to see the church as a largely human institution. If you look at it sociologically, of course, that's what it looks like. Who are Catholics? Well, Catholics are certain people who presumably share certain common ideas, and they have come together to organize themselves into a group to sustain and propagate their commonly held ideas. Well, you can say, of course, the same thing about an organization of stamp collectors. Or you can say the same thing about a political party. If you view the church purely sociologically, then that's all you see. And as I say, a lot of the debate that goes on today seems to be along those lines, quarreling over who has authority and who has power and who's going to have the right to make the rules and nobody consulted me and so on and so forth and unwilling to root all of this in the divine nature of the church, in the church as Christ's mystical body, which is put forth at great length and with many scriptural citations and quite beautifully and repeatedly in the decree of Lumen Gentium. I might say parenthetically, by the way, that the decrees of the Second Vatican Council with their Latin names are commonly taken from the first couple of words of each decree. So if you look at the Latin text of each decree, it takes its name from the first two or three words. Now when we translate them into English, we have tended to give them a subject matter. So instead of saying Lumen Gentium, we'll say the decree on the church. But you kind of have to bear both of those in mind in order to understand what's being talked about. There's also a decree on the laity that is closely related to what we've just been talking about. And the Second Vatican Council has sometimes been called the Council of the Laity because it gave far more attention and recognition to the laity than any other council had ever done in the history of the church. This again has been subject to misunderstanding by people who say, well, you see the church finally admitted that the laity are the church and the church is a democracy. But if you read what the council has to say about the laity, there is virtually nothing there about the laity as exercising some kind of governing authority in the church. Now, I think that things like parish councils are perfectly fine. I think it would be a very foolish pastor who would undertake, for example, to build a new church without having some sort of consensus in the parish that people are willing to pay for it. And if a pastor finds himself fighting with people all the time, he might examine his conscience and wonder if he's doing something wrong. But things like parish councils can function only if it is clearly understood that they do not have any authority with respect to the actual teachings of the church. That you can't have a parish council that decides, for example, that we permit divorce in this parish, or whatever it may be. And one of the things which has caused the most trouble again is the tendency to think that somehow or other the role of the laity now is to be that of teachers and in the sense of being able to change church teaching if they choose to do so. The overwhelming emphasis on the laity in the Second Vatican Council is on the laity as engaged in apostolic activity. The laity going out into the world, the laity preaching the gospel, the laity living the gospel, the laity, as it says in one place, being able to bring the gospel to places in society, in the world, where a priest does not have access. Now this is, in a way, a new emphasis. You can find Catholic writers before the council, sometimes going back a long way, who said similar things, but it was not really part of the mainstream emphasis. 
The tendency had always been to say, well, the priests and nuns take care of that sort of thing. Again, the purpose of the laity is essentially pastoral. But Pope Paul VI, as I mentioned, had been intimately connected with the movement called Catholic Action. And there had been similar kinds of movements which said that the laity are supposed to bear witness to Christ in the world. The laity are supposed to help to evangelize the world. The laity are to take the doctrines of the church and live them. The laity are to have a clearer sense of the social teachings of the church, which they can then apply in their political and their economic life. The whole thing is, the emphasis is outward thrusting, not inward thrusting. The Catholic in the world, the lay person in the world, formed by the church, nurtured by the church, and then active in the world. I think one of the tragedies of the post-conciliar period has been the tendency to too much navel-gazing, to approach the council as though it were a massive self-study of the church that had been undertaken. And in a way it was, but that's not the major theme. It's certainly not what John XXIII had in mind. He thought you could take the church for granted. Now let's talk about the New Pentecost. So when people read Lumen Gentium, instead of seeing the church as the light of the nations, carrying this light out into the world, and lay people among those who carry the light out into the world to dispel the darkness, they want to turn their attention inwardly. What's the relationship between popes and bishops? What's the relationship between priests and bishops? What's the relationship between laity and priests? How ought we to change religious life? How should we tamper with the liturgy, and so forth. What I've here called somewhat flippantly navel-gazing, which I think is really quite foreign to the spirit of the council. I don't think John XXIII or anybody else anticipated that we would be spending decades over these kinds of questions. Should women be ordained? Should priests be allowed to marry? Lumen Gentium is essentially an outward-looking movement, an outward-looking council. The church, the light of the nations, our duty to bring that light to the nations and to dispel the darkness. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.